This is The First Stop, a podcast with the aim of exploring the minds of artists in and around New Haven. I'm your host, David Livingston, an artist and educator at University of New Haven. In this episode, we'll navigate the mind of New Haven-based artist Grayson Hong. The works discussed in this podcast can be found on our blog at firststopart.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at firststop.art. Grayson is a multimedia installation and performance artist whose recent work investigates the limits of human experience. Grayson often uses her body as a site of artistic experimentation. Much of her work humorously appropriates scientific charts, mathematical data, and advertising slogans in order to communicate deeply personal and powerful experiences that often deal with gender identity, politics, and love. So one of the things that I, I've just been thinking about after looking at your work mm-hmm. and looking at your older work and then, and then actually looking at your 2017 show at Artspace after you were um, artist in residence for a year, was it? Mm, yeah. yeah, it's a year. It just flew by. I was really fascinated by how much you use water. Yeah. And I noticed that you were also in the Naval Academy. Yeah. And like, there are all these different ways that you seem to use water. And there are so many ways of thinking about water as like something that's overwhelming, that can kill people, something that right, right. sustains us. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, but what's your, what's your relationship to water and your fascination with water as an artist? I mean, I think water is just one of those like major... I mean, it's one of the elements of life, and I don't think it's by accident that's... I mean, it's a huge subject that many, many, many people have engaged with as a material or as a symbolic um, gesture, like in in metaphorical or like um, allegorical purposes. I mean, it's clearly this fundamental symbol in our lives, both biologically, like... Um, metaphorically, figuratively, you know, and I think um, to be really honest with you, I it's sort of by accident every time it keeps coming up. And so like when I look at look back on it and I think, oh, my gosh, how many times have I used water? I mean, you making the Naval Academy reference too. It, it's just really bizarre to me that it just keeps coming up. Um, and so the, the way that I think about it most is, um, I mean, I think there is... I think about it's like biblical purposes. Mm-hmm. I think about it's um I think about its historical reference. I mean, if I think about like what is in our bodies, I mean our bodies are made of water, but then on top of that they say that there's this um psychological genetics that things are being passed down through memory, right? And so mm-hmm. if I think about like my mom being raised by the water and she can't swim and she's like deeply afraid of the water and oh, wow. but yet so drawn to it like we go to the ocean as much as we can even though we didn't live by it growing up you know um and so she won't really go in because she can't swim and she's afraid of it but she's so drawn to it um and then for me you know I growing up nowhere near the water and 
I don't know, there's just something about the symbolic possibilities of water that just keep coming back. But I think it's also, um, yeah, the way it's in our vernacular, you know, like, again, the baptism, the cleansing, the drowning. I mean, if you even think about like an independent film, there's always that scene where like somebody plunges into the pool to get away from everybody. Yeah, and there's yeah, an yeah. underwater. I mean, it's such a, like, it's such a present symbol um, that I think it's sort of the foundation of my like my vocabulary when it comes to how do I understand a sentiment or an idea and like water is kind of a like a grammatical necessity for me now you mentioned the sort of baptismal mm -hmm. or biblical mm -hmm. references of water in it I was thinking about displacement was mm -hmm. that were you thinking what were you thinking about I mean what was going through your mind as an artist when you made that those two you have two of them right right one like, is in the bath you're getting into a tub it's a three channel video mm -hmm. and the water sort of is just like overflowing out of the tub right right yeah um i mean displacement i mean water is besides space you know water is this other insanely mysterious thing that we we're always encountering right i mean it takes up most of the planet um and it's something that we are we can understand it all and it's it, like you said it's really powerful um with displacement I, I don't know if it was necessarily biblical i think there's yeah. always that possibility and i was raised like super religious and specifically yeah. christian mm -hmm. um but uh and that always comes back in a way that i'm never really aware of right um, because it's like right so fundamental to my identity just growing up in a household of deeply religious people. Yeah. Um, and so I forget about that and it just, the language comes back, you know? Um, but I think for displacement, I was thinking a lot about like the psychology of that word um, and then thinking about the literal interpretation of it, which is how to dis like displacing water as a way to identify the mass of something. Um, mm -hmm. So like a basic Archimedes principle, you know, of like putting something in water to figure out its mass, you know? Right. Um, and so, I mean, so much of my work is actually about measurement and yeah. we're always trying to measure the thing that we can understand. Um, and water is another one, like a fathom is trying to measure water beyond the depths that we can even reach, you know? Um, and so I think, um, displacement was about measurement and then about trying to identify the body, not that different from the fathom, actually, if I think yeah. about it now. So that project was to really figure out like what is my body made up of you know and mm -hmm. so i actually collected that water and then the second part of that where i'm talking to the water is actually the same body of water that is my, replicating my mass and that's not in um explain so the same body of water so the water that's been displaced from the bathtub uh -huh. i collected that water and it is now my mass and you that collected is, the water that spilled over onto yeah, the floor. Yeah, it spilled into another container that you can't see in the video. I was going to ask you about that because <laughs> I was like, did you destroy your bathroom? No, I collected, <laughs> I just taped the heck out of it and yeah. like collected all the water. And then I contained that water in order to talk to it in the part two. Yeah, so part two was like, it was almost painful to watch mm -hmm. in a way because mm -hmm. there was something suffocating about it. Sure, yeah. What were you... What were you saying? I mean, you don't have to tell us, but were you saying anything in particular well, to I, the water? Performatively speaking, I literally imagined that body was mine. And so what would I tell my body? But mm. not my psychology, not my, but like literally my body. So, or, or my mind or my awareness or my consciousness, but like, what would I tell my body? And so I like, I mean, I immerse my face in it and tell, talk to it basically for 
how I don't remember how long the video is, but I just talk to the water, whatever kind of keeps coming up. Um, I talk to for as long as my breath can hold, and then I have to, of course, get some more air and try again. A lot and of it becomes repetitive. physically taxing yeah, as it goes it's on. Physically taxing. Um, and there's like spittle in the water <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really went for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I just, um, I mean, I think if I think about like my body being, um, I mean, the corporeal body being this th- this vessel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think about the ways that we, um, our body is aware of things that we ourselves are not. You know, so mm-hmm. like. Things like that came up in this, and that's kind of why I wanted to just identify its mass. Like, what? And actually, it only ends up being like less than a ten-gallon tank worth of water. That's funny. <laughs> that's so. That is what you, your body. <laughs> that's my body is mass. Ten gallons of of water. <laughs> Pretty much. That's like a so, fish tank. That's interesting. What? <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's really strange to see it like that in this little tank of water, and then. I don't know. I mean, I think at the time it was like a compulsion to talk to my body, talk to myself. Mm-hmm. And but if I think about the other way, the all the ways that I integrated different ideas, like the displacement concepts, both psychological as well as um, scientific, uh, and then on top of that, um, just right the psychological component of talking to body, uh, my body being marked with its gender and its age mm-hmm. and its size. Um, and so all of these things, just I'm just trying to figure stuff out. I don't know through these different ways that these sort of fake science. <laughs> right, right, right. In displacement, there yeah. two part two. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it seems like you're having a conversation. Of course, we can't hear the what you're saying right, right. because it's just like garbled by the water. Yeah. But sometimes it appears like you're having a conversation with this. We can say like displaced. Um, equivalent to your body right and then sometimes it seems like you're having an argument is that the is that like a correct yeah it is you know it was like it's very like codependent or something it felt really yeah there's there's like a a relationship there right already Mm -hmm. yeah that's like literally projected on to this body of water yeah how did you get the shot? Was it like a glass container that you yeah, put a camera on? Yeah, it's literally underneath? that fish tank I was just telling you. It was a 10-gallon yeah, fish tank. It was tank. a 10-gallon fish tank. Yeah. yeah sorry, I missed No, no, no. The, but I mean, I was the, just thinking that it reference literally that it actually was, literally yeah. was the 10-gallon fish tank. Yeah, and the camera's underneath. Um, and ideally, the projection would be actually on the ceiling. There was a really, I think this must be really early, but there was a, I watched the excerpt of Interview of Parents. Mm-hmm. And it was very, um, it was a painful kind of experience right. to watch in a way. Yeah. Like it felt very, it was very personal to you, but it was also somehow like a triggering, like you, th- I just thought of like the kind of adolescent almost desire to be your own person and having the sort of stubbornness of parental. Do you think that relates to your current practice? Like or the is sentimentality that, or, or the kind of just the experience of of that work. That work seemed kind of a little different from yeah, your yeah. other work in terms of the tone. It was less scientific and much more personal. Yeah, that's true. Direct, uh, although all your work is personal, really. But yeah. it's not failed to this kind of like scientific, yeah. uh, like techniques or like methodology. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's one of my 
first video projects and that's where like I really started getting into video um and uh I think yeah that's you're right there's nothing scientific about it I mean it is uh it's about confrontation it's uh somewhat documentary esque and then um the yeah it's about family and right like adolescent um trying to be your own person and like setting yourself up against your parents or with your parents and um trying to figure out what part of them i mean asking them the questions that you kind of wished you had asked but you don't have a straight answer mm-hmm. um and and sort of taking it was actually meant to be um research material for something else that may have ended up being some more scientific but the Can I ask itself, you what kind of research you were I was doing of... research on um actually like on family and yeah. like what in 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 specific like of course it's personal so my family yeah. um and, I mean my sister is absent so it's really about parents yeah. right and filial love basically yeah. um but also like piety right and so if i think about um my responsibility to my parents or their expectations of me um and that kind of tension Yeah. And so um and I think a lot of people can understand what that's like whether they're close to their parents or not there's always tension um of expectation of um disappointment of um of care and then distance and I mean there's so much care, tension concern there there yeah. was it's it's so raw. Yeah. Like yeah. I I I didn't see the whole video so I'm only watching the excerpt but it's mm-hmm. so raw and you feel that sort of the way that parents love their child but mm-hmm. also can damage their child through <laughs> yeah. their love of their yeah. child and yeah. their sort of like preconceived idea of what a child is supposed to be or right, be right. like and then the struggle to yeah like assert that and have I don't know yeah. that's what I got out of it yeah i mean it's a very it, intimate portrait of my yeah. parents and then but specifically through my my um perception of them. Yeah. Because it's through yeah, it's through my point of view basically. So, I mean, I'm estranged from my father from that from that point on. Oh, so, wow. um and we never had a good relationship. And so I was yeah. also thinking about that. I mean, the one element there that in my young age that I didn't think about that comes back later on is um how does how do other how does context impact our lives? Yes. And so that's something i'm still trying to figure out i mean that's kind of what happens later on in the um art space project um mm-hmm. is is how yeah how does the context of our lives i mean do we have sovereignty or agency in the way that we live our lives the the kind of relationships that we have um and is it possible if we don't and so my parents are deeply um tied to or, or i mean we're all deeply tied but my parents especially um they're in a different kind of um self actualization as our expectations of ourselves today. Yes. Um and different given their generation, culturally speaking as well. Um and so if I if I were to do this project again, it would be a lot about like what is it to be a Korean woman and get married at that age? Why right. would she have married my father? Why would my right. father have ended up the way he is, quite damaged and his masculinity fragmented, you know? How would how is like ending up in the United States um uh change their relationship, change their identity, change their expectations of their identity, how had that fractured them as well further mm-hmm. in this way that's irreparable? Um and then how does that therefore also impact me and my sister and then further on with those around me and then if one day my children, how do those things get passed on? How are they um 
exponentially or further subjugated or um, uh, subverted in our psychologies. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's the way I would think about it today. But at the time, it was really just like, what does it deal with my parents? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have... There's like I'm I'm divided. It's like a part of me I want to jump to the art space thing because that's so right. much about, you know, there you talk about uh, reproduction with your partner and sort of family mm-hmm. and creating a new family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more than that, but those issues are like come up right. in that, um, right. and then like the limits of the self and what you can do. Right. But also, I just wanted to. In the environment that you grew up as a child, when did you sort of know that you wanted to be an artist? You know, that was that was never an option for me. Um, yeah. And I'm always I'm always like really excited to see other people from um, conservative backgrounds where art could not even have crossed their mind. It just so mm-hmm. deeply, like it's like in their subconscious at this point that there's not even an opportunity to even consider that as an option. Like yeah. even like people staying closeted, like why would you do that? Because you may be not even aware to yourself that you might be in the closet right? because it's so like um, subjugated in your psychology, you know? And I think uh, if I think about being an artist, I mean, I mean, there's a way that as children, we romanticize this idea, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I see it in my students, like this, romantic idea of what an artist is the way mm-hmm. it's being portrayed um which is so problematic to me but um that it's still present even mm-hmm. today i think um and i don't know i mean i think it's that moment where you get to be away from your parents and yeah. you're starting to identify like who am i what kind of life do i want to live and the moment i left for college was the moment i started to think for myself a little bit more yeah, um, and, and and again, it goes back to like a lot of it is tied to the fact that I was raised by a single mother. Yeah, and if there were like two very firmly culturally entrenched people raising me, I think that would never have happened. R- so you're <laughs> saying that the separation of your parents was very helpful yeah, ultimately in terms of your self actualization. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's yeah. like room for more of my thoughts to come into play because there's only a s- one parent who can only do part of the job, um, and I think. I, I think about that a lot, that like my mom allowed for that to happen because there is already such a non-traditional home life. Uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that moment you start to think like, well, I'm an outsider already. Here's another level of outsider. And then you start to think, how can I, well, maybe not consciously, but I started to think like, well, how can I now be consciously aware of what kind of outsider I want to be? And, and also you get that sense of like, stuff is messed up already <laughs> stuff is so you can up. you you almost have permission to question it whereas oh yeah if you had like loving parents who are very traditional you'd be like i love my parents i can't oh yeah you know i think there's something put like really um the the weight of that is is sometimes so intense that there's no way out of it whereas yeah, right. the moment you start questioning one thing like everything goes you know yeah. and so from then on it just became like let's question everything yeah <laughs> That's so I I don't think you were necessarily going for this in the untitled pool video and I got a lot of other stuff out of it but yeah. I couldn't help but think about the scene in the graduate Oh yeah where yeah where he's like underwater and it's <laughs> yeah. thinking about under being underwater <laughs> as an escape of sorts from sure. the strictures of like life Right right like you kind of pass into a different world space but of course you're also 
I think it's you jumping in, no, right? It's me. Yeah. And you are disappearing each mm-hmm. time that you go into the water. Right, right. What were you thinking about with that particular project? I mean, that was actually like deep into grad school. So yeah. I think there's a way that like all the voices of grad school were impacting my sure. my process, which like, I think a lot of people can understand and, oh, yeah. and relate to. And I think this one actually, in a way, it's like stripped of so much meaning. And I think that that's part of like what grad school did to me at the time. It's like, I'm trying to please everybody. And so yes. it just becomes the lowest common denominator. And so I ended up making something just really like beautiful, maybe, mm-hmm. or like super mm-hmm. sublime or something, or like attempting the sublime. But there's like really stripped down. Um, and so that, I mean, I've heard people say it's like really painterly, actually like my painter friends always really particularly like this video when I'm just like, this video is a really great example of what grad school did to me at the time. <laughs> yeah. And so do you view grad school as a positive experience ultimately, or was it kind of, you lost your, you feel like it almost sounds like you're saying you kind of lost your way a little bit in grad school and then had to find it again. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Like, like I yeah. lost my way and had to find it again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in that way it can be positive. I think losing your way and finding it again is an incredible way of like creating a lot of change and reevaluating and cleaning house. And mm-hmm. the only danger is when you don't find your way back. And I think right. I know a lot of people that that happens to them through grad school. Right. Um, and I mean, in a way, grad school, I think, is a means to an end now. Like we know we kind of have to do it. And so how do we make the best of it, even though it not, doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, it's the best experience or mm-hmm. something that actually helps you, but mm-hmm. like it's sort of a necessity. So um, if I think about it as a necessity and not something that I, then I, I just had to do it. There was no option, I think. Yeah. But um, if I think about if I could choose, um, I don't know. I don't know what I've done differently. Yeah. Know? I felt like grad school was a tough time. It, it, it was easy until the end. Yeah. And it took me a long time as well to just be like, this is what I do. Yeah. And I'm not going to well, try th- to appease all these voices yeah, in exactly. my head. I yeah. mean, I think we, I think undergrad was such a like drinking the Kool-Aid moment of loving art and, yeah. and like not questioning the institution of it. Um, and grad school, maybe it is necessary in that like I, I started to question the institution. And then right, right, right. that was an important moment as a departure from that and figuring out like, what, what do I want to make and what, context with who who's mm-hmm. my audience you know because mm-hmm. it is an institution and it, it does come with its flaws for sure totally yeah let's let's move to and we can jump around a little sure. bit but like let's talk about your exhibition that was at art space uh last year entitled your limit is you your only limit your is only you. limit is you yeah okay Got it. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. It's uh, not my quote either. It's like a th- it's like a hashtag I, quote. I love I love that actually. I was <laughs> I was like this is a kind of interest. This is an interesting title. And then when I was I was I watched your talk and I saw you had a big Nike poster. Yeah, yeah. Of of I don't know if it was like an athlete like running. Yeah, it's, a, it's like one of their ads. Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of amazing that you took that from an ad campaign, but it also seems to really fit into. The concept of the show yeah yeah it was really i mean i'm i'm really into appropriation yeah you know, like what's already there yeah like how can we change its meaning through its reuse you know um so you have a a giant wooden box that seems to reference minimalism almost yeah, a little does. bit right yeah. 
How did you specify the size of the box? So the size of the box is my exact fathom. And a fathom is supposed to be the width of your arms, right? So I'm, it became standardized to being six feet, but mm -hmm. previous to that, it was sort of an average. It was any open length of arms, like from fingertip to fingertip, so like your full wingspan. Um, and so mine's five six, and so the box is um, five six by five six by five six. Um, and so it's in a way it should have been a sphere, but I like right. this idea of a box, especially linked to minimalism. I mean, I'm really informed by minimalism as an aesthetic, but in terms of its ideology, I think I'm much more of like a post-conceptualist. Like go be in school, undergrad, like Felix Gonzalez Torres was mm -hmm. like a huge inspiration for me and, and the way he made things. Can you talk more about that? Like what exactly about Felix Gonzalez Torres was inspirational I mean, to it, you? It's fascinating because he is inspirational to so many people, mm -hmm. like well beyond, I think, like posthumously especially, which yes. is really interesting to me. Like so many young people are mm -hmm. so drawn to his work mm -hmm. and yet it's there's not a lot there, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> which I started to really wonder too. But I think um, I think about the ready-made, mm -hmm. I think about the approach to conceptual art with the ready-made, but um, post-conceptualist's approach to introducing a different kind of meaning that isn't just sort of an art historical meaning. Um, and I think him being a queer artist mm -hmm. of color also was a huge draw for a lot of people, including me, mm -hmm. um, because that's such an underrepresented um, art historical presence. And so I think he was my first exposure to making work like that and mm -hmm. thinking about things and being personal and yet being able to bring in other elements. Yeah, I don't know. I think there was something really meaningful about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember seeing his candy piece and being able to take candy. And there was something so generous about that to me and strange yeah. and then also really funny because there's a way that the museum is responsible for producing this material now forever right, for right, right, our right. <laughs> pleasure but also for him um, and his uh, partner. And it was such a funny trick to me too. There's something about that. Like also his prints where you can take them and there's so little in those environments where you can touch or take or take back. I mean, after a $20 you know, museum ticket, I mean, yeah. to be able to take a print with you, um, questioning authorship, this idea that it's for anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. I think there was something about his whole persona that worked. I yeah, think. yeah. It worked for a lot of people. Also, I mean, I'm really influenced by my like Asian aesthetics, which is yes. super minimal and clean and deeply sentimental, which is in the West, really bad news. <laughs> and we, I think about this a lot and Nina and I discussed this, like yeah. why is sentimentality and sincerity something so Westerners are so afraid of? That's so interesting because actually in the interview with Nina, yeah. she kind of mentions yeah. that. Why do you think in the East um, art is so sentimental? Like, what do you think that's, what is I that mean, about? I wish I could tell you. I yeah. mean, I, I would be looking at it just like you in a way, but with sort of a slightly mm -hmm. more insider because I feel it so personally in a way mm -hmm. that I can't really explain. But I would also be, it's, it's, I would be just as bad about essentializing those conditions because I'm seeing it as an outsider as well. Totally. Um, and so there, my, I have a few guesses, but I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they didn't have the same kind of canonical references. I feel like postmodernism didn't really hit them in the same way, you know? Interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's happening more now, especially like with China. There's some more like postmodern sentiments. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of sarcasm or um, 
an antagonism in the work, but I think it's more like political unrest mm-hmm. um, than it is actually the sentiment. But if I, but even then, like I think it's so sincere. But I, I think like an Ai Weiwei is not really being that sincere. So I think right. it is happening. Yeah, he's very. There's a lot of humor. Yeah, in the work. so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think. There is a kind of twee quality to the aesthetics of Asian culture that yeah. we know from even just how it's being exported. And uh, you can even see it in like Korean dramas, you know, mm-hmm. there's like and their music, you know, mm-hmm. um, it feels like it lacks a certain kind of self-awareness that makes me a little bit uncomfortable and cringe. But that's again, because <laughs> of, I'm coming in from, yeah, outsider. You're coming from a different perspective. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. So one of the things that I thought was, uh, you know, was really interesting is you said that, you know, when you were a resident at ArtSpace, mm-hmm. you were, you know, making all these plans for your exhibition and then, you know, the election, I'll just call it the election, the right? Because that's, right, right. but that happened and it, it changed your direction a little bit, yeah. you were saying, yeah. and how were you impacted by the election as an artist? I think if I were to speak, I mean, I'm speaking in big generalizations, mm-hmm. but I think um, it's not statistically, it's not unheard of that um, the Asian American population is very inactive in a civic sense. Mm-hmm. Um, our voting records and turnout is pretty atrocious. And in general, we vote very conservatively. So there's a there's a part of me that's like, don't vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fine. Just stay the stay mm-hmm. the course right now. That's Let's wait funny. till later until we we figure something else out there. But um, I think. Because of that, and I didn't grow up with any kind of um, feelings of civic duty in my household because yeah. my parents weren't active in that way. Yeah. Um, I think Chinese Americans are very different and they've been here longer and I think they have larger communities and they even have um, representation in government and local government um, and associations and organizations that that are able to represent their, their voices and their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but specifically Koreans are pretty bad. Mm. Um, and so if I'm to be honest, and I think it's good because I think there's a lot of us that feel this way is, and, and it's not just because I'm a millennial, but I think there's a lot of us that didn't feel like civic duty was a necessity or that it mattered. I mean, that's the bizarre thing. Yeah. If I see it now on the other side, like how did I get the idea that my vo- vote and my voice doesn't matter? Um, it, it's, it's not going to do anything, which I think is by design, right? This idea that, um, the disillusionment keeps us um, inactive and then small groups like tea partiers can be the voice of the, everybody, even though they're actually a small population by comparison. I think like a lot of us, um, the moment that the 2016 election happened, I think we were all in disbelief. And I think yeah. a lot of us didn't show up because the poll showed that there was no way he was going to win. Right. And I think when it happened, and I, and I think I knew it was going to happen. I think when I was like, we're, we're in denial, like all the mm-hmm. news, not to say that I knew it. I was really fearful in a way that I think a lot of people weren't. Yes. Um, and, but when it came to be, I was like, oh, I didn't want to be right, you know? So that was the moment I think like, oh, we have to actually be better about this. Um, and so it really shook me and like woke me up. Um, and I think, I mean, that's why so many people who are not active, I mean, that's how a women's march can happen. I think that's why the extent of the protests have been have been larger and people who've mm-hmm. never been to one. I think I, I'm not the only one who's been sort of in shock and, you know, just like totally like an ice bath, you know, just like, holy shit, you know, like I gotta, I gotta be better about this. Um, and I've always felt that way, but I never felt it quite as aggressively or not aggressively, but as strongly as I did after the election. Yeah. Um, 
Because in grad school, I was kind of radicalized because I recognized the deep failures of the institution of including voices that mm-hmm. aren't straight white males. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, and that was already 2014. And so by the time 2016 came, I think it was just the, the extra nudge I needed to really start thinking about this more and realize like, you know, microaggressions are real. And, you know, there mm-hmm. are some um, ways that our world is problematic that we're not willing to see. And that the, it's now in the little ways that we need to identify, not in the bigger ways, because some things are, so, I mean, people are clever and they can yeah. really subvert things in ways that we don't know. Um, and, and you think about the like the ways in which, you know, I think a lot I'm very interested in like the idea of the subconscious, yeah. you know, and I think about those sort of ways in which maybe microaggressions, they're so small, but then yeah. they have this kind of impact on people in ways that they don't yeah. fully, they're not fully cognizant of always. And sometimes they are mm-hmm. totally, completely mm-hmm. cognizant of it, but right. sometimes um, it damages in ways that are hard to fully show maybe i don't know right or maybe not maybe it's all just i think it's right i mean if you're talking about subconscious it's so deep in in our psychologies now that it's really hard to identify yeah i think that's the scary part and And it even happens even in the way that like capitalism is like such a part of our identities now that Mm -hmm. there's no way to separate ourselves from it you know totally Um, yeah and so and the way that we live our lives you know and yeah, I think that that's those are the things that I was thinking about, and now I felt like okay, I can't. It, it's sort of like the way that um, I don't remember his name. I was just reading about this recently. Is is um, all I was just reading like some philosophy texts, and um, just because I started becoming interested in it, and there was a particular philosopher. I, I need to remember his name, but basically, it just hit me. I was like, wow, there is this moment like people were still making art after the Holocaust. Yeah. And and how? Like what could you possibly make after something like that? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so there was this idea that like kind of art is dead, right? There's mm-hmm. no, nothing else that can be made that's ever going to address something like that. You know, or could, in which case why bother? Kind of yeah. attitude. Where that's kind of how I interpreted um the reading of that situation. And so I thought again, well, if we have to keep moving on and if I have to make something, then it seems somehow I don't know, like almost egregious to me to like not address this directly right after it's happened. I could have been not making anything and then never made something, but I have to make something. I'm in this residency. This election happened. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to put something up that has nothing to do with it as if like anybody else. I'm like an ostrich with my, you know, my head in the sand. I don't want Mm -hmm. that kind of read. So everything became infused with this attitude and this sentiment of like what it's like to be in this environment right now and kind of in this shock of this attack on 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 our lives in the, both psychologically and legally and violently mm-hmm. and physically right mm-hmm. so i just thought about it a lot and and try to figure out like how can i figure out what i've already been making and then how can i integrate that differently and how can the whole approach just be read through that lens did you eliminate some work that you were going to include or did the work just evolve? I think it evolved. So like, yeah. the work I had been making was incomplete. Um, there were some things that didn't make it in there, um, but that never were really finished because I just sort of like let them go. Mm-hmm. Um, and this particular project, it is more like a project because there's a lot of disparate parts that were brought together to make a bigger picture. And it's an incomplete picture still. You talk about limit. 
-hmm. It's a very important, it's in the title. Yeah. What does that mean to you as, as a person and an artist thinking about limitation? I think, I mean, if I, you know, in my, there's a way that like, it's also hitting me at a certain age where I'm recognizing like my youth is going away and this sort of idealized mm -hmm. view of my future is starting to change. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it's shaping a different reality for me. And I think about how, I mean, teaching is my full-time job now and it so deeply impacts the way I think about things. I'm constantly going into the class and trying to explain things to them. And it forces me to think about these things. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. what is it that I want to explain to them? And so then it makes me think about those things more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought a lot about like how they feel so overwhelmed by the vastness of possibilities and options, but also the limits of that. They also they yeah. know like they have endless options, but they also know that those options are not available to them and they don't know which things are. And so there's a way that at that age we are tricking them into believing that anything is possible. And they do genuinely believe that, but at the same time, they know that that can't be true. But we also don't give them the tools to know which things are possible for them. Yeah. And so they, they're really frustrated and scared and anxious um, and overwhelmed. And I still think about that. I still think mm -hmm. about like, what is actually possible for me now? Mm -hmm. And what can't I do? And if I think about our political climate and the, I, and also in a global context, I mean, I think we're so, there's no way that we can only think about things nationally now. And I think about the world is so big. Yeah. <laughs> it's so big. Yeah. And we're all so entang enmeshed. Um, and yet also all individuals that can't do much on our own. Um, and it feels scary. And it feels like, what could I possibly do that's going to impact anything? Yeah. And yet I have to, right? I'm compelled yeah. to, I need to, it's my responsibility. It's technically my civic duty. So limits became really important to me. I'm like, what, what could I possibly do? And I, that is tragic. Yeah. Like, it's tragic. Um, because it's also our biggest fear about mediocrity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and well, I don't know. Maybe some people don't have that fear. No, right? I, I have that fear. I think most artists <laughs> yeah, have to I, yeah. because there's just, there's an ego involved, <laughs> yeah, there's a, you know? But I mean, don't we yeah. all have ego? We I mean, all do. I think, I think at some point, like the acceptance of mediocrity, they're still like holding out like a candle of hope maybe, or like yeah. a, um, of the fact that like I've chosen mediocrity. That doesn't necessarily mean I am mediocre or something like that. Right. Um, but I don't know, maybe, I mean, I only know my community is small. I mean, they talk about bubbles. Like I only know very well-educated people, right, right, with right, art, right. mostly with art yeah. degrees that are quite creative or, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, intellectually curious, you know, so I have a limitation on my knowledge or understanding of what the rest of the world is like, actually. Totally. You know, it's like reading the comments section of something. You're just like horrified. You're like, these people exist in the world, you know? Right. And I don't, who are these people? Who are they? And I, I think that oftentimes the educated are described as being in a bubble, but then people who are, you know, like Trump supporters are also in a oh, kind yeah. of bubble. We're all in a bubble. You know, everybody's yeah. in their own bubble with like a few, I don't yeah. know, people and those bubbles aren't communicating very well. <laughs> no, no. no I know? mean, we've. That's kind of the limit thing again. I mean, yeah. part of my research was like, you know, like artist research, right? Um, and I'm always like telling my kids like artists research differently <laughs> than, yeah. than academics. 
my you know was going into this like this idea this theory that we only can handle 150 people in our community right i and what's that called again there's it's a uh, the dunbar the dunbar number yes yeah. and i only know that cuz i listened to your talk <laughs> um but yeah that was fascinating yeah the, and so if that's true then of course we have to have bubbles and you were talking about yeah. facebook right as as using that or as discovering the same They came up with limitation. the same data even though yeah. they weren't actually cross-referencing him at all. That's really yeah. crazy. Yeah, so if you, yeah. they were looking at like who you're actually talking to or engaging with directly on a regular basis mm -hmm. and it it's still, an, it's like a musical chairs, but it's still only 150 people. And like you'll pull somebody out and put somebody in, but it's on average somewhere between 100 and 200. And so you compile the list of all of your yeah. contacts yeah. And you had a few that were like crossed out after a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that like, uh, it's that like, uh, what's it called? Um, yeah, it's like that party invitation thing. You want to make sure you invite the right people. You don't want to leave somebody out, but you can yeah. only invite, you know, a certain amount. Totally. And so yeah. they became this weird social thing where I'm like, okay, I can't be putting these people in and then forget these people. You had a, you made a baby, an online baby <laughs> with, Nina using facial recognition software. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about that process and what yeah. that was like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it deserves a little bit of a um, uh, a prelude because yeah. I, if you have, I think something that I'm really happy about, which no pun intended, is is um, I discovered a sense of humor. <laughs> so, and it's like becoming infused in the way that I make work and think about things. And mm -hmm. I think it has to do with like getting older and taking myself less seriously, mm -hmm. <laughs> which mm -hmm. I'm really happy about. Um, and that is, it comes out of that. Like, I don't think that could have been made, you know, even five years ago. Right. Um, and I think that that sense of humor, I mean, I'm so impressed by people who have a sense of humor, but, yeah. but not in a way that's avoiding something, you know, I think humor can be totally. used to avoid things. And it was a project, but like, um, it is comes out of this, we're, we're at this age now in our relationship where we're like, do we, do we have children? And mm -hmm. because, um, you know, because I'm transgender, I can't have children with her, right. at least not in the natural sense, right? Um, and so, you know, it, we're having all of these conversations about like sperm donor, you know, mm -hmm. um, or adoption, and and that those are your only two options, mm -hmm. you know, and and then so of course here is the cheapest way you can do it is a free software. You also had a chart of your masculinity oh, yeah, level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you chart that? Like, what was that? How was that kind of measured in whatever, you know, way that you chose to? God, yeah, I don't you know. It was it's sort of a made up science. So it has to do with like when I was out or not out, um, mm -hmm. when I was changing my pronouns or not, mm -hmm. you know, what years those might have been. Um, how masculine my outfits were maybe, or yeah, it has to yeah. do with something like that. Sometimes it actually has to do with how much um, medical intervention I was using, mm -hmm. you know, or not. Um, and so those are the measurements that I used and sort of, and it's, yeah. And, I and made, so it I becomes sort of both an art and a science in a way yeah. <laughs> of like figuring out like how much I know, intervention so do you you do you need and yeah. um that's okay so that's interesting and um i was also there's a lot of graphs in this show there are a lot of graphs and actually that leads me to a you have a a background it looks like at when you were at the naval academy did you had a mathematics and science yeah i was background. a math and science yeah and so is that where all of this 
sort I mean, of the, these absurd graphs that aren't based in science, but the interest in graphs comes from? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I've always taken an interest in math and sciences. I'm not good enough at it to have yeah. really pursued it. And at some point it was too rigid for me. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I just, I, I think it's, there's just really amazing things about it that I still romanticize. And yeah. I mean, I think it's just growing up in a house too that really values that more than anything, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. when I see math, I'm like, that's good. Yeah. That's that's what the world needs. <laughs> that's how like how like properly brainwashed that I am, you know. But when I see art, and I'm like, that's a waste of time. You know? Right. So I have this undoing that I constantly am trying to do on a daily basis of like, how do I undo these biases? Fascinating. Of, like the way I was raised, you know. Um, and so, which we're all doing to some degree. Absolutely. Um, and, and math and sciences will, I think, will always be something that I respect. Yeah. In a way that I can't, you know, that doesn't take much effort. I was never good at math, <laughs> yeah. ever. Yeah. Um, and I really didn't respect math, even though it's so absolutely essential to our daily lives in mm -hmm. so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, until I, I had this friend who I made later in life, who was, he wanted to be a mathematician, but of course it never panned out because he wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah, it's um, interesting. You and he was actually really... Chinese American. Yeah, and, what are the odds, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and so he like, but he would talk to me about math in a really interesting way, oh, like yeah. where, you know, if you're good enough at math, it becomes kind of an art form. Oh, like yeah. you can visualize like things with math and like all sorts of amazing things. And I was like, whoa, if my brain was that yeah. good that I mm -hmm. could like do all of that stuff, yeah. it would be fascinating. But One of the um, best artist lectures slash performances I've ever seen actually is um, James Benning, mm. um, who's the filmmaker. Um, and uh, he kind of casually came in at, in my grad program to do a talk. But instead of really talking about his work, um, he's a math guy as well, which is interesting. I think there's actually a lot of people. I mean, he's more of a math guy than me, but because I've not since done any math since undergrad. And um, he was working at the time on a proof. I mean, he was working on a project about J um, Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Oh, wow. And who is also uh, a math genius. And um, so the concept of the rational and the irrational come in. And to Kaczynski, he feels himself to be very rational. And the right. choices he made to be incredibly rational and like a, a necessary ira rational, mm -hmm. which is what compelled him to do that, uh, the things that he did, mm -hmm. the horrible things that he did. And for James Benning, he became really curious about this. Like, what is that line? And so instead of talking to us about the irrational and rational, he did a mathematic proof on how to identify the irrational. Whoa, that's <laughs> so, crazy. How yeah. does that even work? So you have to, which is really beautiful, is it's the proof for how to know that the square root of two is an irrational number. Oh. And so he did a proof for the square root of two. So for people who are not familiar with math, you have to prove when something can work. Um, and just because it says square root of two doesn't mean it's provable. Like even basic things that we learn in math classes, actually somebody had to prove them first. So there's proofs for them. Um, and then they just become fundamental math principles. But for him, like the square root of two is a really interesting math principle because it's actually an irrational number, even though it's sort of rational looking when you mm -hmm. just put a square root over right. the two. Right. But it produces an irrational number. So what you have to do when you do that is actually first 
identify it as rational and then go through the process of doing the math as if it's a rational number and then end up with an irrational number. Yeah, I mean, well, math is yeah, beautiful. Math is beautiful. And, yeah. and so, I mean, we were talking about it in the context of your work, you know, like you've got a Venn diagram um, yeah. of... of My your, genetic material with Nina's. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so how did you... <laughs> and it's it's made with a calligraphy brush, like two circles that, that overlap. Yeah, with Sumi yeah. ink. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of humor. Like yeah. I'm using like these very like Asian materials, you know, right, it has this right, sort right. of like... It has that Osho like kind of look to it. It's this full circle, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it ends up it's a Venn diagram for a genetic material. Yeah. And um, it is because you say it is. Kind <laughs> of like it is because I say it is. Sign, kind of like the sort of square yeah. root of two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I mean say it's also like very referencing like Felix Gonzalez Torres perfect lovers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're touching, you know, mm-hmm. but they're also like these empty vessels, these like circles. Totally. Yeah. They're also like eggs, you know? Yeah. Like two eggs that can't be overlapped, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. They they're have like a this, very much yeah, like an egg. Ovum, right. Kind of totally. Yeah. It's so totally. like the the foundation of life, kind of like the circle, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love using these kinds of really basic symbols and shapes. I also wanted to ask you, I mean, there are a bunch of really fascinating works in the show. One of them was, uh, there was the hugging sculpture that you made. Can you just describe the process of making that sculpture? It's like a plaster casting of a hug. Yeah, yeah. I filled a garbage bag with plaster and then hugged it until it set. And that's why it has all of the wrinkles in it. And what were you thinking about in the making of that or in the conception of that sculpture? So a fathom is also described as an embrace. It's what's oh, embraceable. Wow. It's what you can actually understand. Oh, so because it's still yeah. also a wingspan, so it has to be something within your range. And if mm. you can't, if it's beyond your fingertips, it's beyond your reach. So it became this amazing metaphorical term for the thing that we can't understand, or fathomable versus unfathomable. Um, and so it actually means like what you can embrace. And so. A hug is an embrace, and within that range is what I can understand. And so it just became yet another. It's not that different from my approach to displacement so long ago already with the water. Yes. Um, it's just like, how big is my embrace? You know, and it turns out it's quite small. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, whereas my wingspan was bigger than I expected because I'm definitely not 5'6", you know. Um, but I think there was a lot of anger at first mm. with make, thinking about our current conditions. Mm-hmm. But then I started thinking more about um, how, I mean, hate and anger are so um, toxic. Yeah. Uh, and I think so much of this comes out of that. And so yeah. I switched the tone of the projects to all sort of be thinking more about to be really honest and cheesy about love and compassion yeah. and and again, sentimentality, like what sincerity, you know, I mean, these mm-hmm. are the things that we're supposed to be the most afraid of, you know? Yeah, it's it's very interesting, this sort of, you bring up the hate thing. It's, I mean, it, it's so toxic. And I mean, I go back to the sciences again to justify these things. Yeah. And if I think about like energy, you know, and like potential energy and kinetic, and any scientist is probably gonna listen to me and be like, dude, you're totally wrong. But it's, I'm just trying to make sense of things because it's just so, all of it just feels like, things that can't be understandable, you know? Yeah. And even if, like somebody honks on you in the street and you didn't do anything wrong, or at least you don't know you did anything wrong. I mean, you carry that with you, yeah. you know? And yeah. it just like, 
and then you pass that on to like the next person you see at like the Walgreens, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. and that person, you, you know what I mean? And it just becomes, I don't know. I mean, if I just think about that, I, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't mm-hmm. want to be an example of that. I mean, it's really difficult because it's so easy to get angry and because it's so easy to be like, I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, it's just so much more preferable to be that way. Mm-hmm. But um, it is really hard. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be part of this hater culture, Yeah. which I think social media is really good at because it's so, you know, 140 characters, you know, is not a lot of room to have a lot of sentiment that's real. I wanted to also just ask you about um, the Costco photo repair oh, service yeah. because that was a really an interesting project yeah, where you yeah. kind of had to tell people to cut your hair yeah. to change your gender as a child or, you know, a yeah. photo of you as a child. And what was that process like? Um, you know, what's interesting is is art gives me like the courage to do things I couldn't do as mm-hmm. not not as an art project. And I think that's why I still make stuff sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I do think about like the means of production being a problem with art. Like it feels very much like the expectation to constantly produce something new. But this is an example where like I thought it would be really interesting, you know, just as a curiosity, because I actually again, I, I'm so influenced by popular culture, actually, even though I'm not that engaged with it. But when I encounter it and this is, again, appropriation, but uh, I'm watch- I was watching Transparent, actually, mm-hmm. which, you know, as a, a social phenomenon, I just feel like I have to be part of, you know, watching that sure. as it's happening. Um, and they actually have a scene where they ship their photos, the main character, she ships her photos to be regendered. And then I was like, is that possible? Do- is there actually a business that does that? Like, that's a really clever queer person who came up with this business. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I just started Googling it and nothing came up. And then, you know, I'm a frequent Costco shopper and they were advertising their photo repair service on like a kiosk. And I was like, whoa, what if Here it I is. did that? Yeah. Here it is. And, um, and I, you know, the one thing about that project is I didn't want us to think that we have this, I have this black and white idea of gender and mm-hmm. that um, there's a way to um, just erase your history and like, Regender something and yeah. just move on. I, I mean, yeah. I think that that's. I think there are some people who need that, and I think, the, uh, you know, dysphoria is real, and I think that mm-hmm. can be really important. And, um, in terms of like healing one's psyche, and there's a lot of psychic work to be done as a person who doesn't isn't gender conforming. Yeah. So I think that's really important. But for me, it was more like, how can we not play with these black and white approaches? Yeah. And, um. And so one, it was out of curiosity and two, for a sense of humor. And then two, it came out of an accidental realization that they can't actually do it properly. And so I ended up with two versions of the photo. The first version was, and I didn't want to necessarily say, I want you to make this little girl into a boy. I tried to describe what I wanted and what I wanted removed. And this first result was not quite where I wanted it to be. It was still very much, actually, it was kind of more gender neutral in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I asked them to do it again and shorten the hair more. And I actually had to draw them a picture to make sure they understood what I wanted. Um, and they went and revised it and I kept both copies. And so it became like a three parts. It's a triptych instead of a diptych, basically. So like lack of less about duality and, mm-hmm. and um, binaries. And you said that you mm-hmm. changed your your pronouns during the election, is that the case? Yeah, I did. I'm still and, do using she pronouns if, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so so was that 
a response to the election or was that a, I mean, it's obviously a deeply personal kind of decision that you would make to do that. Um, for me, it wasn't a personal decision. I mean, this is where it gets confusing again. Like there are people who are gender nonconforming where yeah. this is having the right pronoun it is life or death sometimes. Yeah. Um, but for me, but I, and I, that's not the thing that I'm thinking about. I think more about generally, like how do the rest of us in our heteronormative culture keep wanting to hold on to these binary structures. Yes. Um, and so for me, it was one, like in solidarity of women, mm -hmm. right? Like there's nothing more humiliating for a man than to be called a woman. Yeah. Um, which, and there's nothing else in the world more humiliating for anybody. I mean, a woman is already a woman, mm -hmm. right? But for a man to be a woman, right? And this is why um, being late, like imp using the wrong, wrong pronoun, it can be just the most insulting yeah. thing for either gender. Yeah. Um, and so it came out of a solidarity project. Like, yeah, what does it matter if I use a she pronoun, you know, and yeah. I use the men's bathroom? Is that such a big deal? Like, right. And also, like, how much how much we put into the pronoun is just ridiculous to mm -hmm. me. You know, I mean, there are many languages that don't even have pronouns, including Korean. I know off the top of my head, Korean and Turkish don't use pronouns. Fascinating, um, yeah. So, you know, but then we're like a French German, I mean, not German, yeah, French German. Romance, Germanic, romance. yeah. So, of course, we have to gender everything. But, um, and I mean, gender roles are still very strong in those cultures as well. But, totally. you know, the pronoun is a really strange thing to me. And so, yeah, I've been using she pronouns since selectively. I mean, safety is an issue for me. And depending on where I am, I won't always do that or I won't yeah. always announce or correct. Um, because it's not an issue of dysphoria, it's not about self-identifying with the pronoun, it's more a gesture to kind of mess with it. One of my mentors, Terry Temlitz, is, also does this. She's in her own statements in her website. She goes back and forth between male and female pronouns, like just alternating. Mm. I was reading that um, that the journalist Masha Gessen yeah. is, she takes testosterone or is like taking like a low dose of Testosterone is kind of like remaining a woman, but just like having testosterone. Yeah. You know, which is really fascinating to yeah. me. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool that you can just say, well, I mean, because there are all these different levels of, you know, different people have different levels of hormones and hormones are always like in flux. Yeah. And so, yeah. You know, it's yeah, an interesting every person has a different level, which is why some men and women appear differently or yeah. sound differently. Or, yeah, I mean, I, I think modern medicine does is can do something really cool with this or has been doing it. But the regulations make it much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things we have access to that we're constantly modifying our bodies to our desires. Yeah. Um, but the gender one is one that we're very protective of. You know? Yeah. To view more of Grayson's work, visit graysonhong.net. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you like the show, give us a good rating. And if you have a moment, write a review. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to Bruce Barber, director of WNHU, for providing the resources and guidance to make this podcast possible.